Welcome to the Being Giants podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and this week I'm speaking with Alex Troutman. Alex is a wildlife biologist who has, in my opinion, worked a lot of our dream jobs. His roles include being a bat biologist in Malaysia, working with sea turtles for the U.S. National Park Service, working at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and Zoo Atlanta, just to name a few. He's currently a master's student at Georgia Southern University, where he also earned his Bachelor's of Science in Biology. In this episode, Alex and I speak about some of the jobs he's had and the glamorous and less glamorous sides of them. You'll hear about how important it was to Alex personally to have mentors and role models that have encouraged him in science who are people of color, and how Alex is actively mentoring younger black wildlife biologists. You'll also hear us geek out about bats and sea turtles, and you'll hear about what ocean observing is and how it works on a dredging ship. You'll hear that and more this week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Alex, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I would love to start um, by talking about, like, you're a biologist and a conservation and wildlife biologist, and I was wondering if you could talk about how you got interested in biology and conservation. Yeah, so I'm a wildlife biologist. Um, I guess to start off with, like, I always had, like, a thing for nature. It started out with fishing with my uncle and dad and brothers, and uh, I would be more, like, um, amazed at the birds that were flying over. So I would see red-tailed hawks, like, soaring, and then great blue herons that were better fishermen than I was um, catching fish, and so that was kind of what like got me liking nature. And then that, like in turns, like as I grew older, like I would be more focused on the nature aspect of my chores. So when I was cutting grass, I would be looking at what was running away from the lawnmower than actually trying to cut the grass. So it took hours to cut like a quarter acre when it should only take thirty minutes, if that. Um, just because I was trying to catch the snakes and frogs. So, like, I always had that uh, thing for nature. And, like, I knew I wanted to do something with animals uh, for a long time. Like, I believe I wanted to be like Steve Irwin and Jeff Corrin as um, conservationists. But I didn't see anybody that looked like me doing that. Uh, everyone who, were, who, was, um, who looked like me, who was black, uh, worked with... Um, worked as a vet or worked um, as a farmer. Um, so that's the only, like, uh, I guess, representation I had of people working with animals that look like me. Uh, for So for the longest time, I figured I would be a vet until I got to college and realized that vets, um, they have a high depression and suicide rates because they're usually the last one in the room when the animal is put down. Um, so I, I actually, I changed my major. I was like, oh, I don't want to be a vet anymore. Um, and I switched to middle grades education and uh, minor in biology. And it was during that time where I took a, a couple of field um, biology courses uh, that I realized like, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to, I'm going to be that conservationist or wildlife biologist. Um, so during that time I took ornithology, which is a study of birds. And then I also took mammalogy, which is study of mammals. And both of those were outside field biology classes. So we were outside. Um, those were really my first true birding experience, um, looking looking for birds um, during our class and trying to identify them. And then during mammalogy, we were actually trapping um, 
oatfield mice and other um, mammals um, that was on one of our professor's land. And that was like, you know what? I'm going to make this work. Like, I want to be outside, like, researching and studying these animals. Um, so I switched my major from middle grade education back to biology um, that, that year. After you switched your major, um, like, at what point did you start working in the uh, wildlife biology areas? And what was your first um, job? So, yeah, my first job... Um, um, I actually, I volunteered as a farmhand for a free range cattle farm, um, during college. So that got me some more animal handling experience. Um, uh, like during high school, I actually, I was part of a club that was for, uh, homeless pets. I'm um, trying to get them adopted. Um, so that kind of gave me a little experience. And then after I graduated college, um, in 2014, I took a job with AmeriCorp and Student Conservation Association in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania as a park ranger. So with that, um, I was up there for a little over um, half a year, so about seven months or so. Um, and we were there to like be ambassadors for the park to get people to utilize the green space. So the part I was responsible for, there was nine county parks um, and I was responsible for the southern half. So there's like four or five of those parts that I was responsible for uh, making sure people were utilizing that park, doing nature programming, uh, roving the parks and seeing if anyone needed any, any help or anything. And an interesting thing about that, people were actually, like when we first got into the park, people were actually mad that we were coming to the park because they thought we were replacing the police officers and like stealing their jobs. And they thought we were also be enforcing rules. And was like, whoa, whoa, chill, buddy. Like we're just here to make sure you're having fun in the park and you're like coming to our educational programs. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was interesting. So they, they were really mad about that. But once they realized like we weren't stealing any white jobs, they were, they were fine and happy to see us. Um, except for people who didn't keep their dogs on the leash. Um, they, they didn't like us because we were like, oh, you should have your dog on the leash. Uh, one person actually like really got real mad because we told him to put his dog on the leash. And he was like, he was like, I've been doing this for blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, we're we're like we're gonna change that like the rule says like your dog has to be on a leash um so you're gonna have to put your dog on, on a leash um and he was like well i have like i have lunch with the commissioner or somebody like in high government every day uh, that's what he said and I, um i was like okay well uh, he will have to follow the rules too. <laughs> he was he was so mad. It was it was like entertaining, but uh, also I was just like, wow, like like this is crazy. And then another funny thing with that job is like there are people that would feed like feed the deer. Um, they would go and get donuts. Um, at, it was every Friday they would bring donuts to the park and just dump them there, um, for the deer. Um, and they got mad when we were telling them, like, you can't, you can't do that. Um, and they was like, well, what, like, where are they going to eat? It's like, do you see all this grass? Like they can go forage. Like if you actually look at 
some of the bushes you can see that there's a browse line where they're over like they're overeating the overeating the foliage right there and it was like why don't you like do something useful with the donuts instead and it was like it was just telling like also like you're not only feeding the deer but you're feeding the raccoons and the rodents too and like we, we don't need that but so that's what i did for the first seven or so months outside of college and then i um moved back down to atlanta and got a job with um zoo atlanta as a animal handler and educator so i took on the tractable animals which are like small mammals or animals that can be held in your hand and or in a small like dog kennel and taken to different uh, organizations and schools so i would take those and give like a conservation message and then show them the animal or i would do tours around the zoo, and then we'll come back and learn about an uh, animal that we had. Um, that was one of our ambassador animals. So I did that, um, and also worked at the Georgia Aquarium at the same time um, as a environmental educator. So I would I worked at the zoo um, some most of the times in the morning, and then I would go to the uh, aquarium later in the afternoons or um, have it every couple of days I would I'll be at the aquarium and then at the zoo and I did that both of those jobs for about uh, six months um, and then I took my first like governmental job with the Fish and Wildlife Service in New Richmond Wisconsin um, and that one that one was was pretty interesting uh, because it was like my first it was my first time being like uh, officially away from home um, for the longest time, like when I went to Pittsburgh, like I was away from home, but I still like kind of knew some people uh, within the surrounding either area or state, but Wisconsin, like I didn't know anybody up there. Uh, I moved all my stuff up there and I was up there. I thought it was going to be almost forever, but I ended up only being a year because a new administration came in. Um, but that was um, one of the like most interesting times like I ever um, worked because um, I I was a new person there and not only was I a new person like I was the only one from a city area urban area being from Atlanta hmm. and then also I was the only black person in my office um, wow. so so that was interesting um, just learn, learning the ropes and also like trying to trying to fit in. Uh, it was it was quite the experience. When so when you say there was an administration change, are you talking about like the all the upheaval in Wisconsin that I think a lot of people heard about um, with like I guess the governor, or was it like a, an administration cl- like closer I guess to the level where you were working? Uh, no, I'm talking about the present administration. Um, so that was right at the time when um, President Trump came to office, and oh. and the the uh, what was it the um, there was a cut in funding by seven percent. Um, so I was one of the last persons there, so I was one of the first persons to go. So oh yeah. my god, I I this is I yeah I mean I'm just like yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that that like affected you so directly. That's what I have to say. Um, yeah. Wow. 
And so, okay, so you had moved yourself all the way up to Wisconsin. You'd kind of gotten into this kind of um, unique situation where you're the only black man from Atlanta in this like otherwise office full of like rural Wisconsinites, I assume. And so then you're cut because of budget cuts. And then what happened? And then I um, got a job with the National Park Service um, with um, the, I was at Padre National Seashore uh, working with sea turtles. I was in the uh, division of sea turtle science and recovery. Um, so it was, that was pretty good. Like I didn't think I would get the job um, because like I never actually worked with sea turtles besides like uh, interpreting about them behind the enclosure when I was at um, the Georgia Aquarium, but I never had any hands-on experience with sea turtles. Um, but I think just the experience I had with the Georgia Aquarium, then also my field experience um, from being a park ranger and also working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, it made me a, a decent candidate for the position. Um, so that was my first experience working with sea turtles. Um, and like, also I never thought like I would never I would ever work with sea turtles because I didn't picture in my head at the time that. Sea turtles, um, they they come to land, at least the females do. They come to land. In my head, I was thinking that um, I would have to, like, go out to them, uh, which I eventually did later on in life. But uh, I never pictured myself going out to work at sea with sea turtles or any marine life. Um, so I didn't picture myself um, uh, working with any marine organisms at that time. Um, but... As luck would have it, I, I got that chance to work with them, uh, starting with Padre Island National Seashore. Wow, I love that. And I, I don't think I realized that your sea turtle experience started in Padre Island because I, I grew up in Austin. And so we used to sometimes go to like the Texas coast. And like it was always like so exciting if we got to see even like the they mark off sea turtle nests on the beach a lot of times. Um to like protect them from people stepping on them and stuff. And so was that the type of work you were doing? Were you like like protecting nests or what, what kind of work were you doing with the sea turtles? Yeah, so um, I was, we were actually with the part of the beach that we we're on, they actually allow you to drive on the beach. Um, and Texas is actually written in the constitution mm -hmm. that it's a road, the beach is a roadway. So since we were working with Kim's Ridley Sea Turtle and they're critically endangered, we will actually collect the eggs uh, and move them to either an incubation room um, or we would move them to a, a natural corral um, that was protected by a, a, like a pretty much a giant tennis court with sand in it. We would move them down there depending on how far down the beach we were. Um, so our main job was looking for the nesting sea turtles, but we also... Uh, look for or respond to any stranded sea turtles. And those are basically sea turtles that come up on the beach and either they're injured, sick, or they wash up for um, some reason. We're not really sure. So we'll respond to those calls as well. Wow. Cool. And I, my mind is like blown because I, I know that you can drive on beaches in Texas and it, it feels really funny to experience that if you're used to like beaches everywhere else where you're not allowed to drive on them but I had no idea it's like legally mandated in the Texas Constitution although I can't say I'm all that surprised um <laughs> I'm so curious when you like moved when you moved the nest like 
Um, is it true that sea turtle like eggs, they develop into male or female based on the temperature that they're in? And so does that like affect a lot if you're moving the nest? Does that affect like the ratio of male to female sea turtles? Okay, yeah, so it is true that they're temperature dependent. So with sea turtles and other other reptiles, um, they're temperature dependent. With sea turtles, it's around 82 degrees um, is going to be male. Then anything above around like 84 to 85 or so uh, will be female. So higher temperatures are female and then lower temperatures are male. Now, what... Uh, we did at Padre Island. Um, well, first of all, we can move the eggs within a six-hour window after they are laid. So when they are laid, they're, they're, was it? the embryo has not actually attached to the like actual egg yet. Oh. Um, so they're, they're able to be moved. But once that embryo is attached to the egg, uh, it's, make, it's very dangerous to move them because the egg could fail. Um, so when they first come out, they're like about the size of a, a ping, pong, ping pong ball, and they're like soft. So you can like pick them up and manipulate them and move them. And then what we do, we collect them in styrofoam coolers uh, with sand. So we get sand from the nesting area, wherever the nest was. We get that sand, put it in there, make sure there's no debris or um, any insects are in there that would um, make the eggs fail. Um, so we'll pack it up nice and then we'll transport it to our incubation room. And then there we will put a uh, temperature probe in it um, so we can monitor the temperature. And then we also, at the incubation room, we actually like control the temperature. And for them, um, we actually control for them to be more females at the incubation room because the females are one that produces the egg. So we want more females. Um, and then in the natural corral, mm -hmm. we also, we monitor the temperature, but we don't, uh, it's just whatever outside temperature is, um, that's where they will hatch at. Wow. That is so cool. And I guess, and like, do you think that, or did you, did you guys study or are there studies about if you end up getting a higher proportion of like successful hatchlings when they're kind of in this controlled environment? Like I assume there's less predators, so do you have like a significant increase in the amount of baby turtles being born or not born <laughs> hatching? Yeah. <laughs> hatch. So, yeah, I mean, from my experience, there is like a, a good bit of that being hatched. Um, but the thing is like, even though they hatch, they still have to go to sea. And uh, once they go to sea, it's, one in 100 or one in a thousand that actually will make it to like reproductive so adulthood to reproduce um so like we we give them a a little bit of a fighting chance um to not be predated while they're um eggs um but once we release them like it's game on for everything else so we we give them an extra 60 or so days to turn into hatchlings from the eggs and then nature. And then they're on their own. <laughs> so how many eggs are usually in a single nest? Um, so usually around 100 or so um, is what I, I usually see. Um, sometimes less, sometimes it's more. 
And um, with sea turtles, they actually can nest three times a nesting period. Um, so a season, they can nest up to three times because they actually um, store their sperm. So they can release that release the sperm to make a new clutch and um, lay a nest. And it usually takes um, between 30 to 40 days for after they lay one nest um, to have enough um, for the eggs that they're, they're growing to be able to lay that second and third nest. And sometimes the nest, like, um, the clutch size will get a little bit smaller um, as they um, lay um, the every sexual nest. But um, most of the time, average eggs are around 100 or so. Wow. <laughs> I That is so crazy that they are storing the sperm for the whole season. And is that, like, multiple males male sea turtles sperm or is it like one um it could be multiple but i'm not really sure <laughs> i just always started a sperm that's right this is yeah. kind of crazy i mean i think i've seen like videos of like a bunch of male sea turtles around yeah. one female so right that's probably kind of where it makes Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's interesting, like, they're mating. It looks like they're trying to drown the female, but, yeah, it's interesting. Um, okay, so you were at the Padre Island National Park Service service. Is Are you still there, or um, how did, like, what happened after that? And, like, I know you eventually went back for your master's, which is what you're doing now. Like, so what, what happened next? Yeah, so I did Padre Island um, for two years or two seasons, and then um, I went to Malaysia, um, Sabah, Malaysia, to study bats. So Sabah is on the island of Borneo, Borneo, which is um, an island the on the side of the world that is like inhabited by Malaysia. Brunei and Indonesia, and I was in Mal- the Malaysian part in Sabah. Um, so I was working at Crocker Range National Park there, and looking at bat diversity and abundance. Wow, that is so cool! So, like, what kind of bats? Well, I guess we were working on a bunch of kinds. If you are looking at bat diversity, like, can you give us like a like how many bat species are around, and like how big are they, and What's your kind of favorites, if you have any? To get all together for all, the whole project, there was over 250 bats found. There was 30 um, actual different species. And how do you capture them? We capture them with two different methods. Uh, one of them is a it's a mist net. So like we use for bird banding, uh, we use a mist net. And the bats fly fly into it, and then we would retrieve them out and then um, put them in a bag and work them up. Then the other way is a harp trap. So a harp trap is basically a pretty much a giant window frame, and then it has fishing line that comes down from the frame that wraps around it and then it has like a little bag up under the frame where the bats fly into. And then once the bat flies into it, you can pick them out um, of the bag. The fruit bats, we 
we would use <clears throat> excuse me, we would use the um, harp trap for, and then the insectivores we would use the mist nets for. Huh. Cool. And when you say like work them up, are you guys like weighing and IDing and like tagging, or like what what kind of work are you doing once you um, catch them? Yes. Yeah, so when I say work them up, what we're doing we're we're weighing them. Um, so the, we weigh them, it's, it's pretty funny. They're, they're smaller bats. They're not, most of them were in like no bigger than like my palm, like height wise, no bigger than my palm. Like, so yeah, they're, they're very, they're very small. And then the, uh, we, the way we weigh them, we make it, what's called a bat burrito, which is we like put them in like a little stocking, like a stocking cap or cut off end of a stocking, roll them up. So um, they're nice and um, like snug, and then we put them on a, a, a like a gravity balance that pulls down with them, and it gives gives us that their weight. Um, then we'll also we're looking at using a caliper to measure their forearm sizes, and then we're seeing um, if they're a juvenile or adult. And the way we do that is we'll shine their light up, shine a light up to their wing. Um, and then in their forearms, there's like, if they're juvenile, you can see like, it's kind of translucent. Um, but if they're adult, um, it's, it's like solidified. So it's, so you can't see through it. Um, so that's where we're looking at their bones. And then we also see like the age, um, or if they're reproductive by, um, looking to see if they either, um, had testes or not. And then if the females, if they had, uh, we'll look and see if they're like any form of lactation to see if they um, had any pups or anything. Um, so yeah, and then uh, we would use a key. Um, so we're looking at like ear sizes, no ear sizes, the shape of their nose um, to see if they're uh, wet to help us identify what species they are. Seven or so that were at, like, new species uh, that haven't recorded, that haven't been recorded in that park before. Wow. And was this over like a three month period of time or like how long were you guys sampling? So this was, uh, for the part that I was there, it was over um, two months um, that the project had been going on for, I believe uh, two other years. Um, but for my part, I was there for a little over um, two months. Um, so, so once we got there, it was hit the ground running um, to like get these back sampled. Uh, it was actually very like discouraging at first um, because we would set up the heart trap and like we'll get one bat or we wouldn't get any bats for like the first two weeks. And it was just as we moved up the mountain, then we actually started getting bats, and it was it was like we would start off going up at four o'clock uh, in the afternoon, hiking up the mountain, and then coming back down around eleven or so. And then as we got um, farther up the mountain, um, it was it was later. We would come down later, and then we would also have to wake up because we were leaving the heart traps overnight. So we have to wake up and be back up the mountain by seven o'clock to set to check the heart traps and then move them up to the next 
um, next study point. And then we'll go go back down, take a little nap, and then go back up at four again. So it was it was fun. Oh but, so yeah. were you guys like camping? Um, we was living at a research station. Um, so I was living um, at a research station in Crocker Range National Park. So um, it had so we had electricity. Um, uh, we didn't have AC. Uh, we had fans. Um, and we didn't have a refrigerator, uh, so most of our stuff uh, we we ate. Um, we were we were vegan-ish. Uh, we ate things that didn't have to be refrigerated, um, and then eventually we did get some things that could be kept on ice. But ice, of course, it was so hot it didn't stay long, so we couldn't get like a lot of stuff. So yeah, it, it was it was fun, but um, we were in the rainforest, so it. It rained pretty much uh, like every every day, and some some days we were got caught in the rain, um, and uh, but we got used to it uh, eventually. And it was just oh, it's just another day in the forest. Wow, that sounds it's um yeah, it sounds like really fun, but it's so crazy to hear like you went weeks without even like getting any bats because you know at the end of the project when you say oh we captured 250 bats it like sounds like there's just bats all over the place but yeah it actually sounds like it's quite quite grueling and thankless for a little yeah the, the first two weeks it was very it was very discouraging because it was it was like low single di- low low double digits uh, for the first two weeks like the first week it was, right. it was single digits and it was, the second week got a little bit better, but by the third week, we're using a heart trap and a mist net, so we're we're bringing bring them in. Wow! So how like how did this project connect with your other work? Like, was this like a one off couple months, or like were you con- like contracted? Like, how how did you get connected with this project? Yeah, so this project. Uh, it was, it was totally different from all my other work. So this project, it's it was interesting because like um, I wasn't gonna apply to it at, um, at first. Um, so I saw it, I saw it on Texas A&M job board, um, and then like I was looking at it, and then it was like, oh, it's for there. It was for recent graduates and also on underrepresented scientists. And um, I've been out of school for. Uh, well, with the federal government, a recent graduate is two years. Um, but this one, I've been out of school for over over three years. Um, so like I was, I was by the federal government, I wasn't a recent grad. Uh, by that, but by that program, I was still a recent grad. Um, but I didn't know it at the time. I wasn't gonna apl- apply to it. And then uh, one of my mentors sent it to me, like, "Hey, you should apply to this." And I was like, oh, maybe I will. And then uh, one of my friends sent it to me. And I was like, oh, gosh, I guess I have to apply to it. Um, so I, I applied to it, and I, I got it. Um, and bet I actually applied to be one of the people working with small mammals. So like there were some of the rodents and um, marsupials over there. Um, bet that project, the funding, um, didn't come through. Um, so they called me and was like, hey, um, the funding come through for this project. Is it okay if you if we pitch you on the bat team? Um, and I was like, 
I was like, no, I don't want to work with bats. What? I'm just playing. I was like, I was like, yo, that's what? totally fine. Like, I'm not gonna turn that down. Like, what? <laughs> I was like, that is totally fine. Like, yeah. Wow. What? So that that's kind of how I, how I got over there. Wow, that's awesome. So after that project, did you like go back to your other job or like did you start a different job? Like what happened after that? And did that project make you think like did it change the trajectory of your career at all? Um, yeah, so that project, um, it I wouldn't say it changed the trajectory of my career, but it definitely gave me a, a interest in grad school. Um so that project, like like I said, it was for underrepresented like science and recent grads, um, but it was also like um, I guess encouraging us to continue into like in, into the scientific um, world and also um, give give grad school a chance. Um, so I kind of got me thinking about that because before, like, I once I finished grad, once I finished undergrad, so I'm done with school. I'm not going back. But um, having take that that job and then um, some of the mentors um, there, like, uh, kind of uh, gave me some insight and encouragement to like look into grad school. So um, after that job, I came back home. And like I wasn't really still wasn't thinking about grad school, but uh, one of my friends who worked with me um, at Padre Island National Seashore uh, uh, just hit me up and was like, "Hey, what are you doing?" And I was like, um, "Nothing really. Like uh, looking for a job." And um, she told me that the company she was working with um, was hiring uh, was looking for a scientist. Um, so I was like, "Yeah, sure." Um, so, um, I got back on a Tuesday and I interviewed with the, um, the company on a Wednesday and then I started work on, on Friday. <laughs> yeah. So like the job I got was, uh, as a endangered species observer on the dredge, on the dredging ship. So a dredging ship is little ships that go out like. Um, to either deepen or widen shipping channels, or after hurricanes or major storms, they will um, go and dig up sand and throw it back on the beach, uh, what, what is called like beach renourishment. Or uh, if, a, if a state or um, community has enough money, they can um, build their own island and a dredging ship will be used to dig up sand to make that island. Wow. And so you're basically seeing if as they're dredging up sand, are they impacting and like, I guess, negatively, usually impacting endangered species? Yes. Yes. So my job as an endangered species observer, um, it depends on which like coast I am. Uh, if I'm on the Atlantic coast, like I'm looking for sea turtles, but I'm also looking for endangered um not yes, endangered uh, marine mammals, so like uh, right whales. Um, so make sure that the ship is not coming too close uh, to these whales. And if we are, like I'm saying, hey, we got to slow down. There's a whale coming by. Um, also have to notify like um, someone on land that there's a whale in the area and area. And then they'll usually send someone 
um, to look um, look at it and try to identify it. And then if it's if we're digging, I have to tell the operator, "Hey, stop digging. There's a there's a well in the vicinity. We we gotta stop." Um, so that's what we're doing. If I'm looking, if I'm working like on the Atlantic Coast, where the wells are gonna be there. Um, but if I'm in the Gulf, um, like Mexico, uh, like um, Texas, where if I'm there, like Brownsville, Texas, Corpus Christi, Galveston, like the chances of seeing a well over there is very slim. Um, so there we're looking for um, if they're digging up or coming in close contact with sea turtles. Um, so there's obviously there's a lot of sea turtles over there. There's a nesting ground. Um, so I'm making sure that they're not digging up sea turtles. And if they do dig up sea turtle, I have to make sure that it, um, without a doubt that they, um, either killed it or they didn't kill it. Um, cause if they kill it, um, it counts as a take. And if you get so many turtles, um, it's, um, the project can shut down. So uh, what I do, I'm I'm watching them, I'm watching them dig, and after each dig, um, there's the dig head, the digging instrument. It has like a giant head on it. It's kind of shaped like um, I don't know, like a giant troll kind of thing, like shovel almost. Um, but it has these metal chains that are hanging down from it. Um, they're uh, uh, what is it four inches by four inches like um, chain going across to kind of prevent the turtle from being um, dug up. Uh, so it's like supposed to make the turtle bounce off so it's not dug and suck into um, the instrument that's sucking up all the sand. Uh, so my job is to after each dig, make sure that there's no turtles in any of the um, boxes, the screening boxes. So all the sand is, once it's sucked up in the giant pipe, it's pushed through screening boxes um, that will hold um, any um, material that's not sand in it. Um, so my job is to make sure that there's no sea turtles in there. If there's are, like make sure um, that we document if they're alive or not. If they're alive, we call a rescue boat and get them to a rehabber as soon as possible. If they're dead, we um, work them up. Well, if they're alive, we also work them up. But if they're dead, we work them up and see what could have been a cause. And if they're like a fresh dead, or they've been dead a while, because um, that will help us determine if the uh, actual dredging ship like um, was the reason for the death or not. And then, like sometimes, like the sea turtles, there's a lot. Uh, if there's so many sea turtles, on um, the project will be shut down. So, after so many sea turtles, um, there's extra measures we put in place to make sure that there's no more sea turtles taken for the prize. So. Um, we already have the TED, the turtle extrusion device, that um, metal chain um, mesh. And then after that, then they weld um, chains on the bottom of the dragging instrument um, where they, uh, where you can, where they will, like, the chains hang down. Um, and it's, they're called ticklers because it's supposed to, like, tickle anything all of the way as they drag the, um, Drag head is going down. Wow. That sounds sad. That sounds <laughs> kind of sad. And I guess I also wonder, like, I've heard of marine observers on fishing boats before. And I've heard that it can be, like, a really contentious, uncomfortable job because 
the observers are basically policing the well I don't know if policing is the right term but they're they're making sure that no one's breaking the rules on the boat and like the it kind of impacts the fishermen's like livelihoods did you feel like you're part of the team when you're on these boats observing the dredge ships or was it also kind of uncomfortable when you had to say hey guys we have to stop um I definitely felt a part of the team for um most of the boats that I was on, um, a lot of them understood, like, you had a job to do um, just like, um, just like they had, they had a job to do. Um, and then there were some, some that when we, when they were starting to get up number, get up numbers, like for the sea turtle wise, um, they, they was like, there, there was someone would like joke and say, "Oh no, like, like, don't see any more turtles." Like, and then I'm like, "It's not me getting turtles." Like, <laughs> like I want to say, like, it's not me getting turtles. It's, it's y'all that. I mean, it's a lot of turtles out, out there, and like, I know they're not purposely like going in, like, "Oh, let me dig right here." And there's a turtle for sure, and picking them up like that. Um, so yeah. Like for the most part, like I definitely feel a part of the team. Like I'm living on the boat with them for um, three weeks, um, sometimes up to three months at a time, um, depending on how long I want to stay on the boat. Um, so like you do get to know, know these people. Um, and I definitely don't think any of them have like malicious intent. Um, but like I said, it's, it's their livelihood. If they get shut down, um, then like, they, they lose money and they're not working. I understand that. And like none of, like, I don't think any of them or like was like intentionally like trying to like sabotage or anything or intentionally telling me like, like, hey, don't, don't get this turtle or anything. But I just say like it was their, like I understand there's a job, like it was my job as well. Yeah. It's so interesting to me to think about like these really big engineering feats that like I suspect most people like it's kind of out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people, big dredging projects. And like it's kind of interesting because we're really only discussing like the impacts of the dredging on like turtles and marine mammals. And I'm sure that it's kind of impacting like the whole ecosystem and I guess I'm wondering if, like you mentioned, like the ticklers to like kind of get things out of the way, which is pretty cool. And are, are there other things being developed kind of in the dredging world to, to try to minimize the negative impacts on marine life? Um, I'm sure they are, but I don't know for sure. I just, for us, like uh, another th- like tool that we implement, if there's like a lot of sea turtles um, being like, disturb or taking what we also do is have a um we have like a um a trolling um boat that goes out in front of the the dredge head and pretty much like trolley like around and catch any other sea turtles on there there and then they will tag them and take them like first they'll take them i think they take them like one or one mile away from the boat or dra- or the digging area and, and release them um and then if the same turtle is is um picked up like when they 
uh, do another loop around the turtle, um, around the boat that will take them like five miles away um, from the digging area. Um, so they use like trawlers to try to prevent um, turtles from being taken if there's a, a lot that, um, that starts to be come up. Um, but then also like, uh, like I said, the ticklers and then the, um, using the four by four like TD and then so those are some of the, the ways, but I'm sure there are other ways that are being developed or researched right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, I guess I'm like really, I'm like saddened to hear how dangerous it is for marine life, but I'm also kind of happy to hear that like there is like resources being put in to try and like protect these animals. So that's pretty cool. How you ended up going back for your master's and also like, how I guess like how and when you started really engaging with like media and social media and kind of I mean from my perspective it seems like you're now being like the black biologist that people can look at in the same way that they looked at like Steve Irwin and Jeff Corwin when we were kids like um so I guess kind of talk to me about how you're an you were an observer and like what you're up to now and how you're kind of building this like amazing career where you're very much like a traditional biologist, but also really engaged uh, with public engagement. That's a, not a good, a well-phrased question, but does that make sense? <laughs> I kind of got back to grad school or got to grad school um, by accident. <laughs> like I was like, I was looking at stuff to apply to um and i interviewed for one position up near my house um in metro atlanta um and um i was telling my my mentor who's down at the school i'm at now i was like hey um like i'm gonna have an interview next week um they'll probably reach out for you to be a reference uh would, would you mind it was like yeah sure um so I, I told him that because I went down to my school, um, to that, to my school town for a wedding, and I told him that. And then, like Tuesday before my interview, um, he reached back out. He was like, "Oh, I just found out there may be funding available in um, this person's lab. Uh, you should reach out to him." Um, so I was like, "Sure, I will." And it was like, "Why would you send this to me like right before my interview?" But okay. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I had the interview and I, I thought it went well. Um, and then I, uh, reached back out to the other, um, uh, to the professor. I was like, to see what he was, he was talking about. Um, and like we scheduled a lunch and like, I went down there, um, to my school to meet him. And like, when I met him, like he seemed pretty cool. And he's also a, uh, person of color, um, that's in the scientific realm um, so we clicked on that. Um, both of us being um, minorities and unrepresented scientists. Um, so we clicked on that, and I was like, "Yeah, I, I think I want I want him to be my advisor." Um, so I, was, I told him, "Like, yeah, I, I'm gonna apply." Um, and that was in that was in like September, and I didn't apply. And then like uh, November, November came, and I was actually on a dredging ship, and. Um, 
he emailed me. He was like, he was like, yo, man, what's up? Are you going to apply or not? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, let me get on it. Um, so I, I applied, and then uh, I didn't find anything out about it until uh, December 28th. And once again, I found out when I was on a dredging ship that I got I got in, and I had to move by January um, six down to Georgia, back to Georgia Southern, uh, which is where I graduated with my bachelor's degree. But now I'm getting my master's degree here, um, so I had to move um, in like less than ten days. So I had to get off the ship that I was in at that time. I was in Brownsville, Texas, which is. Um, almost, you might as well say it's like Mexico, um, and I had to drive 20 hours back to Georgia and then move down, back down to South Georgia all before the 6th, and I, and I didn't get off the boat till the 30th. Oh my gosh. So, it was crazy. Whoa, and you had to like quit your job, I guess, too? Like, was that the end of your, uh, your ocean observing role? Um, so I didn't, I didn't quit, but I put it on hold. So theoretically, um, I can go back and, um, pending COVID, like, well, last year I was going to go back pending before COVID hit, um, to work during like Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving break. Um, so maybe this year, uh, I'll do that. Um, but right now I'm actually not even on campus anymore um, because I am working with the Fish and Wildlife Service um, while, I, while I finish up my degree. Cool. And are you, where are you working with the Fish and Wildlife Service? So right now I am working at Tensaw River National Wildlife Refuge and it's in Tallulah, Louisiana. And is that like related to your master's work? Or is that kind of just like a separate thing? So it's a little of both. It's related because um, it's dealing with conservation biology, uh, which is my master's. Um, but my master's project uh, was focusing more on um, insect, um, like insect diversity and the diets of um, seaside sparrows which are a um, like species on the coastal um, United States. So they, they do have some that get here in Louisiana, but they're all farther south. Um, but the, the group that I was working on was in South Georgia, in Brunswick, Georgia. Um, so I was looking at the diets of the nestings and seeing what the parents are bringing back to the nestings to, to eat. And then I was sampling the arthropod, um, like um, soft body organism community of what um, is in the actual salt marsh and comparing that to what they're bringing back to what the parents are bringing back to the nestlings and what's available in, in the salt marsh. Wow, how cool. And so are you still taking like online classes or is your is are you like moved on to just thesis work? Yeah, so I'm taking online classes. So I'm taking two seminars and a um, regular lecture class. 
um, that's that's online, um, and then of course my like writing hours. So I'm I'm taking I'm like I don't know I'm over a full time student right now. <laughs> like I'm I'm probably taking the maximum hours um, online wise because I'm trying to graduate here in three months. Oh, great. So yeah. Um, so yeah, so you're a full-time student, you're like working, uh, as like a conservation biologist and you also have this like huge online presence and you're, you know, talking to people on your Friday afternoons on podcasts and stuff like that. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about like, yeah, how and when you got interested in like engaging so publicly with media and stuff? Right, yeah. Um, it just kind of happened, like, before, like, I had my Instagram, and I would, like, try to do, like, informal scientific, like, communication. Just, like, pretty much, it was really just for my friends. And I was just like, oh, look what I'm doing, all this stuff. And then, like, last year, like, at the beginning of last year, like, in actually 2019, so it was, like, December 2019, my... Um, Instagram actually got hacked and so someone stole it from me and, and like Instagram was like, oh, like we can't prove it's you. So they deleted it, even though like half of the pictures were of me and like I went through the whole process of like emailing them and like taking pictures like with my, my account name and saying like, oh, this is me. This is my account. But it's like, oh, we can't prove it's you. So de they deleted it. Um, so I had to start it over. Um, and at, around that time I started over, it was also around the time that, um, everything went down with, with Kristen Cooper, um, and the lady Amy in Central Park, where she called the police on him because he said, she said that he was threatening her, um, but all he did was ask her to pit her dog on a leash since she was in, um, a park that had. Um, a park where people could bird and and it had a rule that your dog had to be on a leash. Um, so she threatened she threatened him um, and had the police call called on him. And that same day was also the day that George Floyd was murdered by um, the police as well. Um, so uh, around all that time was when like my. Um, Instagram was, I finally created a new Instagram and throughout that with the George Floyd and Kristen Cooper um, thing that happened, events that happened, um, me and some other people in a group called Black Elf and STEM um, started like, yo, we have to like, we have to do something um, like about this show, like this is not a a one-time occurrence um, with black people, people of color being harassed or not being able to enjoy nature um, in the same way that our white counterparts have. So uh, that's where Black Birders um, Week came about. Um, and that's when like my, I guess my new account just took off uh, was when I was sharing what I do. It was the Black in Nature um, hashtag and I was sharing um, my ways of being black in nature from working uh, as a wildlife biologist to um, fishing and just enjoying pizza 
out in nature is still a form of black in nature. And so um, that's where it took off. Um, and then since then, like um, I at around the same time, I was also working with a homeschool group in Atlanta um, called Play um, Play Pan African, where um, like they reached out to me in 2019 um, to teach them how to fish um, at one of the local parks. Um, and so like, I was also like doing like engagement with them to show them what I was doing when I was away from them. Um, and so that's where like my social media presence like kind of like rebounded and took off. Um, so it's just like originally it was just for my family. Um, but then it started um, my family and friends, but then start turning out to like, you know what, like I have this like presence now and like I know what it feels like to not to have like the person, a person who looks like you doing a job that you want to be doing, um, not to see that representation. Um, so I like, I was like, well, I'm going to be that representation. Like, like I have the job, I have the platform now, so I'm going to show people what uh, a black scientist does what a black scientist look like and be that representation um, that I didn't have as a kid. Wow. That is an amazing story. And I guess, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about is like, man, how crazy that the Central Park birder incident was like this thing that you've had happen to you where you ask you're asking people like in Pittsburgh where you talked about at the beginning of the podcast like oh can you put your dog in a leash and people are being really like ah, I can't do it and it's just um yeah it's like a, a weirdly common experience probably for black birders and um yeah what a what a what a crazy story and um yeah, it's really awesome. I guess something I really love about your like s- social media use is that it's very like positive and happy and it's still you're still engaging really directly with like problems and it's not like you're pretending there aren't problems, but it like f- feels like yeah, there we can like get somewhere and like you helped like build this like um black birding community and like are, are really making a lot of like positive change it seems like from my perspective and like you said like being the example that you didn't have um and so it's like it's so cool to hear that story and to see how successful um you've been and um I guess um you said that you're graduating hopefully in like three months and I was wondering what you're up to after you graduate Yeah, um, that's a good question. I do not know right now. Um, so there's right now my role with the Fish and Wildlife Service um, is as a pathway student. Um, so there's hopes that once I graduate, that it transition into a permanent position. Um, so that's one one of my goals. Um, and then after that, like I also I once I have more free time where I won't be in grad schools, I'm definitely plan on being more involved in a community uh, where I'm at. I'm at. I want to actually um, start. Um, I'm gonna say hopefully COVID will be over, um, but hopefully we'll have the wraps on um, COVID and I can actually start back engaging. 
um, face to face with um, a community, um, whether it be um, starting back with my the homeschool group I work with um, in Atlanta, or if it's um, in a new community with wherever job I'm at, I want to start back engaging in the community and not only just like teaching about birding, but um, teaching about fishing, teaching about like gardening, just um, getting them all, getting everyone back into nature, but also uh, getting them into nature, but also being inclusive uh, about it and making sure it's accessible to all. Yeah, that is awesome. Okay, Alex, that is a, a really nice note to leave it on, I think. And I am so grateful that you came on the show. Thank you so much for your time and your work. And I'm so excited to see um, what else you accomplish. All right. Thank you. It was great talking to you. I appreciate you having me. That's it for us this week. If you haven't already checked out Alex's Twitter and Instagram feeds, you will not be disappointed when you do. I am usually a bit of a social media skeptic, but have loved hearing and seeing Alex's smiling face with many animals of the American Southeast on his social media profiles. We'll also link to the tickler or the dredge head used on dredging ships in an effort to scoop, scoop animals like sea turtles out of harm's way before sand is moved from the ocean floor. As always, we love to hear from you and we are so grateful for your time. Thanks for listening.